There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 398. And today in the show, I'm joined by Tony Peterson to answer listener questions on topics ranging from killing does to finding late season bucks in warm weather to whether or not helium balloons can lead you to big bucks. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Onyx. Today we're doing some much-needed listener Q&A. I get tons of emails and Facebook and Instagram messages um, from from you guys, which I love getting with specific hunting related questions. And I hate myself for this fact, but I'm not able to respond to all of them. And I'm sorry that I can't do that. Um, but that's why I try to make sure we get some of these episodes in, uh, cause I want to answer as many of those as we possibly can and help you folks out. And to do that, I've got my buddy and a leading meat eater contributor and one of the very best deer hunters I know and that person is Tony Peterson. So, uh, Tony, thanks for being on here to uh, help me answer some questions. Well, thanks for having me, buddy. You uh, you said that we were talking a little earlier today, and you said that your experience on the back 40 forced you to take a full month off of hunting. <laughs> is that true? Have you have you been doing any whitetail hunting since we talked last time in uh, early November? That, that was partially a joke about Michigan hunting and partially <laughs> – uh, more of my response from getting after it for a couple months in a row and just coming home after that drive and going, I don't want to, I don't want to see the view from a tree stand for a while. So I did, uh, I took some time off and hunted some pheasants and hung out with my little girls. And, uh, lately I got the itch bad. You know how it is when the, when the season's about to end and you start going, man, it's going to be nine months before I can do this again. So mm-hmm. I, I've actually been hunting really hard lately, uh, just to try to kill an antlerless deer here close to my house. And it's, it's been a lot of fun and very humbling. Yeah. <laughs> I hear you there. That's, that's exactly how I felt after, uh, after all that back 40 stuff finished up, I went and I did, as you know, I killed the buck I was after on my other Michigan spots. And then after that, I took my big breaks. I think I took two weeks off, but now I'm right back in the same boat as you trying to kill, trying to kill some does. And that's, that's, 
it's a lot of fun. I love this part of the season when I'm not worried about filling a buck tag and instead I can just get out there and hunt for antlerless deer. And, and like you said, that can be a challenge sometimes, but it's also slightly less stressful or something. Something about it is just a little bit more. Um, it feels like I'm just going out there to have a good time hunting and not as much as, okay, I got to do this. I got to do this. This has got to go right. And I can't, I can't make this mistake. And if it goes all just right, then it's, then it'll go the way I want. So maybe that's just because of my manic personality, but something about this is nice. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Oh, it is, man. You take away that pressure of the, of the buck tag situation and you, you find yourself just hunting to hunt. Yeah. And the, it's just a different experience out there and they're, they're both fun, but this time of year when you kind of got the burnout factor going real high and you're just trying to, you know, wring as much as you can out of the season before it's gone, it is just nice to go sit. And if, if you get a good shot, try to take it. And if not, who, who cares? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and you know, this is, this perfectly segues into a bunch of questions that I got. Um, I've got a bunch of different listener questions and a lot of them actually revolved around this very topic, which was, you know, nobody ever talks about trying to kill a doe. No one ever talks about the tactics for filling an antlers tag. It's always how do you kill mature buck? How do you kill a big buck? How do you kill, you know, such and such buck in early September? How do you kill a rutting buck with a grunt call? Blah, 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 blah. There are not many articles or podcasts dedicated to, hey, how do you kill a doe? in December or January or something like that. Um, I haven't read that one, Tony. I don't know about you, but um, <laughs> I will summarize a bunch of people's questions, which is, hey, talk us through some of the things you're thinking about right now when you're trying to fill an analyst tag. Um, well, let's let's just answer that generic question right off the bat and check off on about 30 of the mm-hmm. submissions I've gotten. What are, what are your, some of your thoughts there? Um, you know, I think that, I think a lot of those questions probably come from people who don't have maybe a traditional destination food source to set up on. Cause it's not, if, if you're talking typical whitetail strategy right now, it's not, there's no secrets. I mean, it's go set up on the calories and wait them out, but a lot of people don't have that option. And yeah. you know, that's what I'm dealing with right now. And so I'm, I'm trying to, uh, I'm trying to kill them passing through and staging. And it's been, it's been really interesting cause I'm having as good a hunts in the evening as I am in the morning. Cause I'm not on a food source. And so it's really been about, uh, you know, w- what do you have to work with? And if you don't have that awesome pick cornfield or that food plot, you got to figure out what they're doing. And you might have a situation where you have deer bedding on a little property. You, m- you might have the right bedding cover, but you don't have the right food. And so a morning hunt might be a better deal if you can get in. And it's, it's kind of about starting over right now and, you know, scouting in the moment and figuring out where they're going to go. And if you see, if you see something happening, they're pretty patternable right now and you can move in on them. Uh, so there's, it's, it's a fun time to hunt. And plus you just don't have nearly as much competition out there. Yeah. Now on the flip side though, you don't have as much competition right now because there was a shit ton of competition two weeks yep. ago or a month ago. So these deer have been heavily pressured just about anywhere you've been. You could be in even an aisle or somewhere at least for any part of the season, this is the most pressured they've been relative to the norm. So they are edgy. They are on pins and needles. They're going to be more sensitive to mistakes probably than they were three months ago. Um, Do you find yourself being more conservative at this time of year because of that? Or do you have to get more aggressive because of the 
the, the flip side is that you have to get aggressive to get to some of these spots. Um, I find myself kind of walking an interesting line with this because sometimes you can just get away with what you said, which is just hunt by where the calories are and wait them out and does will show up. And if you have that, it works. Um, but then sometimes like in the situation I'm in right now, some of my, my main Michigan spot that I spend a lot of time on, um, all the food has been plowed under. I've never had this situation on this set of properties, but all the food's gone. It's just a bunch of dirt fields. And so I have zero late season food now compared to every other year when there's always good stuff. So now I'm in that situation you just described where I've got bedding, I've got transition stuff, I have no food. So I went last night and hunted a little spot. Yeah, last night? Yeah, last night. I hunted a little tiny food source that I do kind of have, but it's kind of eaten down to a pulp. And I thought there's a chance that you might get one doe family group that'll hit this on their way to the other places. And and I did have that happen, but they were out of bow range. But what I'm finding is that if I want to kill one of these does now, I have to actually get aggressive, almost as aggressive as I might hunt, you know, on November 8th in a certain way. But I'm thinking about this unique thing that we don't very often, which is a lot of times I think about how aggressive or how much pressure I can put on a buck and like what they will, what they'll be okay with, what I can get away with. But very rarely do you think about, okay, how many mistakes can I risk making to kill a doe? And what will a doe family group tolerate? You know what I mean? What I'm getting at here. So I'm actually, I'm, I'm going to be okay with doing something knowing that, yeah, I might go in there and these deer might figure me out, but I might be able to get away with it a few more times in general than I could if I was trying to kill just one five and a half year old buck. Um, and so that's a different mindset to have at this time of year when you're thinking about that. Um, I don't know. Is that, is that something you're dealing to? Oh, big time, man. I, you know, if you want to become a, a better hunter hunting does right now in a place that did get pounded during the gun season is, is a great way to do it. Because like you said, it, it's a weird time because they're pretty visible when they're moving. Or if you have that place, they're feeding, you can see them, but when they get bow range close, they just don't tolerate anything. And I, that's what I've been dealing with. I've had, I've, I think I've probably sat five times in the last week between mornings and evenings, and I've had deer within shooting range every time. And I haven't gotten to full draw without blowing everything out. I'm, <laughs> I'm just, and I'm telling you, like I'm getting busted by fawns. It's just, it's almost comical yeah. and it's really focused. It's, it's forced me to focus on how do I get in there? How early do I have to go in there? What route do I take to go in? Cause I, the, the place I'm hunting, I have a couple different ways to get in there and the amount of deer I see varies a lot by how, where I park and you know, how long it takes me to walk in there. And it's sort of this weird masterclass that I'm, I'm getting on hunting all deer. And I'm telling you, I've got this, this group of three doe fawns in there and they all look delicious. And I've had those deer around me so many times and they are like, they are so good at surviving right now. It's crazy. Let alone, let alone when the does and fawns come in and I try to, I try to shoot one of the, the older does or there's a few loners in there. Everybody is on their a game this time of year. And so it really, it just, it, it just forces you to think about every move you make. And if the wind is, you know, not perfect, or if it's a little crunchy going in, or you wait till they're a little too close and you start to draw, it's, it's rough. I mean, it, it, it's really humbling. Yeah. So, so what are some things that are unique to hunting does this time of year that would be different than the things that we would tell people 
you know, to do when you're chasing a mature buck during the rut. I mean, I'm thinking like, for example, if I was thinking of how I might set up uh, for an evening hunt and I was chasing a buck during the rut, I might be thinking about, you know, being downwind of a parallel trail that a buck might be running down to scent check the food source. Or lots of times there might be this big cow path that leads into a food source that I wouldn't hunt because that's where all the other deer are going to come on. But the buck might be on this much less noticeable path. That's 30 yards down. They're like little things like that. I'm not, I might be paying attention to sign rubs and scrapes and stuff when I'm trying to kill a buck, when I'm trying to kill the doe, it's actually the obvious sign, the obvious thing that is the right way to do. It. I'd rather hunt the obvious trail and be very safe from a wind perspective then try to do some kind of cut in the corner wind to try to hunt a food source and make the deer think that they've got the wind in their favor. Um, I'm not worried about that. At least for me, I'm not worried about that kind of thing. I'm not worried about a, trying to set up so that a bunch of does have the wind in their favor to come to a food source. I am going to try to be in between wherever they're going or where they're coming from, which is whatever they're betting in right now to that best food possible. And if I can't hunt really close to it, I simply want to be safely downwind so that you don't have the chance of one of those does picking you off as you described. Um, and then hunt the obvious thing. Like if there's a bunch of tracks telling me that a bunch of deer are coming through here, the nice thing about when you're trying to kill does is that I don't care what those tracks are. I don't care if one of them is four inches wide and splayed. Um, if there's some tracks, there's probably a deer that I'd shoot in that group. And, um, yep. and so you, you don't need to overthink it in certain ways, but you still have to execute well on the simple plan if that makes sense. Um, so like you said, you got to be able to go through that whole getting drawn back process. You got to make sure that you're paying attention early on in the hunt when the does show up before you were expecting them and you don't, you know, have them pick you off when you're in that tree that's wide open right now. You don't have as much cover. Your things are louder. It seems like every sound echoes more this time of year. These deer are on edge already. So any little thing will set them off. Um, so it's a different attention to detail, um, but it's slightly more forgiving in some aspects, I guess. I, I think it's I think it's more forgiving in that you have more options. I mean, you have more targets, right? Yeah, like, that's the biggest. If if you're if you're open to an, any antlerless deer, you've got way more options than if you're if you're you know limiting yourself to a five and a half year old buck. And I I honestly think we don't give you know we we talk about bucks all the time is how cagey they are and you know, what a buck has to go through to be five and a half years old. We don't think about the age of does or the job they have. And I honestly think that does a lot of times are way better at picking you off than bucks. When you see, when you see bucks move through the woods, even on public land, a lot of times they're so confident that they're not, you know, they, they don't seem to be on their a game as much as sometimes you see those does coming through with fawns and they don't miss a thing. Mm -hmm. And so it's not, you know, it's not so cut and dry that, this kind of deer is, is really good at it. And this kind of deer is, you, you can be dismissive of it. And this, this time of year, you can't, you can't write any of those deer off. They, they all have the potential to teach you a lesson about what you did wrong. And that's, that's what's so fun about it. And it, you know, the, the thing that levels it off is that is the quantity thing. You usually have just a way bigger hit list. Now, if, if, Anybody who walks in that doesn't have antlers on its head is on the menu. Then you you got some options, but they're not easy. And that's what's awesome about it. Yeah. Okay. So what about this scenario? Let's say you are set up and you have some does come through, but that big old mama doe, 
you know, picks you off and she either sees you moving or hears you draw back or something and boogers out of there. Um, when it comes to does, you're just trying to kill some does now. Would you camp, if you found a spot like that that works and that there's does coming through like that, would you just sit out there again? Would you go back the next day? Would you expect some level of forgiveness? Or are you thinking, man, she blew me out. I'm going to have to do something different tomorrow because she's going to come right back and look in this tree and see me and then out of here she goes. Or on the flip side, you know, well, that one deer picked me off, but there could be another 10 does that could come through here still because I'm on the right food or I'm on the corridor that leads to the right food. And, you know, I don't care about that one because there's going to be seven more. I, I, I care. I, I just had a really, uh, a really good example of this happened to me. Um, I had a doe come in the, the very first night I hunted since I, I got back from the back 40 and she, she fed in, had a couple fawns behind her, got to 20 yards broadside. I was like, this is over. And as soon as I started drawing, she was gone and she never looked up. She just heard it and she bolted. And so it was kind of like a weird bust because she just, she knew something wasn't right within her guard, but she didn't know what happened. And I hunted there, I think two days after that. And that doe came back in and she pegged me so hard up there. It was just like, she remembered like, oh, the last time I got here, something that I just wasn't comfortable with. And so they, it, it kind of depends, you know, if, if you have enough deer coming in where you can, you can, you know, let a couple of them go, or if they, if they bust you and snort away, it's not that big of a deal, then you can keep kind of volume hunting a spot. But if you get one of those does like that, and she happens to be the one, the first one who moves in the evening or the first one back, she can make your life really, really tough. If she blows up every time she gets in the area, or if she's going to look up into that tree it, to the point where I'm actually thinking about hunting this doe specifically from the ground and carving out a little spot in a cedar tree just to see if I can trick her and she come in and think that maybe that tree's empty. So I'm not there. I, I, I don't know, but it's, it's interesting to see when you get out there and you have those experiences, what some of them tolerate and what some of them seem to learn from. Yeah. You know, I think one thing that's a little bit different between buck and doe here is that if I had that kind of situation with a mature buck, I, you know, if they pegged me there, I would be much less expectant of them to return to that exact place the next day or two days after that. I'd expect that they're probably going to avoid it by a wider margin for some amount of time. But with a doe or doe family group, I feel like there's a pretty decent chance they'll come back the next day. There's a pretty good chance they'll be back if I'm in the right spot. You know, if I'm on that right food source or if I'm on the trail that leads to the food source or out of their bedding area. Um, but I do believe that that mama doe is going to be looking right at that tree. She's going to, she's going to come in that general direction and she will be looking to see if you're there again. And I think that if you, I think you can get away with going back to the same general area, but you better be in a different tree. I can't tell you how many times I've had this kind of thing where I get pegged and the next day I'll hunt a different tree, but in the same general spot. And you can watch her coming from a mile away and she's just pegged on that tree, looking at it, looking at it, expecting to see someone there doing the head bob already. But if you're not there and if you're somewhere that is enough out of the way that she doesn't pick you up again, they'll eventually let her, she'll eventually let her guard down and come in once she's confirmed that the danger isn't there tonight. Um, so what I found has worked pretty well for me is that if I do find myself in that situation, I'll reposition within that zone and, um, you can get away with it the next day or two days later or something. Um, when you, 
you just might not have that same opportunity if it was a buck you're after. So I think you've got a little bit more wiggle room there when you're when you're doing this. And then again, it comes back to the target rich environment too. If not that doe, then it's the other group that comes through. Um, so so that's what I'm doing right now is I'm I'm bouncing around these transition areas to the food. The food's all in places I can't hunt, but I can still hunt the transition corridors. And I'm, I'm camping in the best places that I can hunt on those transitions until I get pegged or make a mistake or kill one. And then I'm making a small adjustment. Um, and I'm trying to fill as many doe tags as I can because I think a really important point about doe hunting is that this is the absolute best thing you can do to help yourself come next year when you do have a buck tag. I think it's a really important point to make that there's, and we talked about this in the podcast we did earlier this year, Tony, right? I mean, the moment of truth, dealing with that moment of truth is, is a tough thing, no matter how experienced you are, but the only way to get better at it is to have gone through it a bunch. And the more times you go through that moment of truth, the better you can handle it. And if all you ever do is kill, you know, or try to kill one mature buck every year, or whatever that is for you. But if you limit yourself to that kind of thing, you're just not going to get that experience set a whole lot. If instead you can go and fill five doe tags in December or throughout the year or whatever it might be, whatever that number is for you, um, it does nothing but help you. It, it absolutely makes you a better, more, um, you know, more effective once you have to go through those moments again. And, and it's, it's, it's a high pressure, intense situation, whether it's a doe or a big buck. Um, but simply having more targets to work with when you're doe hunting gives you that opportunity to, to push through it. Uh, at least that's what I found. Oh, I totally agree. I think, I think it's a, it's just an awesome way to, to get better and, and, and learn from the things that you shouldn't do, or, you know, maybe get some positive reinforcement if you get it right. And it's just, there's a lot to it. It's, it's a lot of fun and it's, it's worth the effort. Yeah, it is a lot of fun. That's the other thing is it just, it's just fun. It's just fun. And you fill the freezer and you get great food and, it's it's great practice. I, I love my late season doe hunts and you've got a bunch of deer to butcher and you get to do it. And it's kind of like a fun thing with the family for, for me, at least I get the, my wife involved and now my boys. And uh, it's just a good way to wrap up the season. If it's ties a really nice bow, like you, you top off the freezer to the max, wherever you need it. Maybe you share a deer with a family member or something. Um, and it, I just love that as the way to end my season. It just, it leaves me with a good taste in my mouth, both um, figuratively and literally, I guess, and then sets you up well for the new year. So you, your wife will actually help you you butcher and process a deer? Yeah. Yep. That's that's awesome. My, yeah, no, she mine, doesn't love it, but she, <laughs> she, she participates, and, and usually she's happy that she did it. Yeah. Well, that's, you, that's better than what I have going on. My wife ha- has offered a few times, and I, I had her uh, – just be kind of the, the rapper and the, uh, you know, the label writer, right? Like, okay, this one's backstraps yep. from this date and this deer. And I don't know what she was doing. My, my wife's a smart lady. She has a doctorate. Like she's, she's no dummy, but 
when we started opening up those packages throughout the year, when we would eat them, it was like mystery meat. It was like, she had no <laughs> connection between what she wrote and what was actually in the package. I was like, what are you, what were you doing? Like, how distracted were you? And so she's, she's, she's not much, she doesn't help very much with that process. That mostly falls on me these days. Yeah. That's uh that's important. You don't want to be surprised when you open up the package and you're thinking you're cooking up backstrap for the family. Instead, you got a pound of burger. <laughs> yep. Uh, yeah, that's, uh, it's my next 10 to 12 days, I think, is, is hopefully doing a bunch of that. So um, let's let's keep rolling through some of these. Um, here's an interesting one. And I, I've, I've read a few people like post theories about this. I've never given it much thought. But Jonathan asks, do helium balloons have any connection to buck betting? <laughs> He, he, I'll continue. I'll read the rest. He's kind of a long thing here. But he says, do helium balloons play any, have any connection to buck betting? This has been posted more and more on social media about thermals bringing balloons down and where those balloons land are an indication of good buck betting areas. Uh, people have both laughed at this theory, but others have picture, posted pictures of bucks shot in these areas too. I was a skeptic about it until my son and I were out on the last day of gun season in Wisconsin. We set up on the ground between some deadfalls. And it wasn't until we got set up that we saw a helium balloon laying on the forest floor. I didn't pay much attention to it, but uh, other than where it fell and landed, but I was just sitting there. Then I started seeing all these fresh rubs and sign, and we sat for a couple more hours and decided to pack it out. But as we were walking out, we jumped a buck about 75 yards away from this location, bedded right in that area. I'm still a skeptic, but I'm curious if this is coincidence or if there's something to the balloon and thermal buck bedding theory. Um, so I've read in some other places on forums and stuff about the same thing. So the, I'll, I'll kind of generalize it a little more. The basic theory here is that there are certain, like there's balloons all over the place. People put these balloons up in the air for birthday parties or whatever. And unfortunately they end up as litter spread across the woods. I'm sure people have seen that out there and where these balloons get taken to though is supposedly, you know, an indication of where the natural wind and thermals and wind tunnels and stuff eventually direct anything that might be floating in the air. And so some people have said, man, if you see a balloon laying somewhere, it is, you know, or, or a number of balloons laying somewhere, it might be indicative of one of these kind of spots, like a bathtub where a lot of air currents kind of funnel down into and deer like to key in on that kind of thing. Have you ever heard of that? Do you think there's any possibility of truth to it? Or do you think it's someone online trying to sound smarter than they really are? Well, I think that that's a, I love that he asked that question and that he's entertaining that. <laughs> um, I had never heard that theory. I have, I actually remember way, 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 way back when I was an associate editor at Peterson's bow hunting, somebody wrote an article and referenced, you know, seeing a, a helium balloon waving around in the woods. And I remember the other editors like bringing that up, like, Has, have you ever seen this? And I've actually seen that a few times out there where they, they come down and they get caught. I've never in my life connected those random balloon encounters to any kind of deer hunting strategy. I think that that's a, uh, I think that's maybe really grasping <laughs> at straws there. I think if you found, if you really paid attention to the location of 
every balloon you found in your life in the woods, you know, any kind of remains of a balloon, you would find maybe a little more randomness to it than them getting sucked down into places where the thermals are awesome and they, they provide a good bedding advantage for deer. Uh, but I could be wrong on there. I've never, I've never entertained the the balloon pattern as a possibility for finding deer. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I'm right there with you. I've, I've never paid enough attention to it to lend any kind of true anecdotal observation, at least to it. But uh, my gut tells me that while maybe this does pan out that way, there's got to be a whole lot of other random circumstances where they end up elsewhere. And it's just too... <laughs> <laughs> too uh, too small a sample size to draw any kind of strong conclusions from. There's enough other things you can key in on to try to figure out where bucks bed or where deer bed that are much more surefire. So let's start there. <laughs> Good. I, I, I like that. Yep. Yeah. Um, but fun to think about. And I, I, I'll tell you what, next time I see one of those balloons out there, I'm going to sit and think. <laughs> <laughs> well, here, here's what scares me. We have to be, we have a environmental responsibility with the answer to this question. Cause I don't want people going out there, letting balloons go. <laughs> Good question. That, Good point. Hoping Good point. that that's a strategy to scout. Please don't do that. Do not do that. And if you see these balloons, pick them up, put them in your backpack and put them, you know, bring them back home, take them out of the woods. Yep. Uh, if for no other reason, then then so that some other hunter doesn't come along and think that's a good bedding area. <laughs> well, yeah, okay, here's another strategy. Now there's going to be somebody out on public land tying <laughs> balloons to yeah. random places that he doesn't want. He like that he wants the concentration of yeah. pressure to go to so yeah. he can hide the hide the better spots for himself. Oh gosh, that's some funny stuff right there. <laughs> I've got a friend who who does something similar the opposite way where he'll I'm not condoning this. I'm not saying you should do this. Um but he will set up dummy tree stands in places where he, you know, if he's trying to, if he's got a little secret spot that he doesn't want people to start hunting, he'll put like three tree stands in a half circle around it between the access point and where he wants to go hunt just to make other hunters that are passing through like, oh gosh, this thing's getting hit super hard. And then they go somewhere else. Uh, so uh, people are getting, people are getting very creative with their public land hunting, Tony. I, I, I do not condone or endorse that. I simply state it as uh, as something you got to contend with. Yeah, that's uh, I, I don't I don't want people doing that either. No. <laughs> so so here's a different ethical question. If we're examining the ethics of of something like that, Josh asks, I have permission to hunt a three acre property, but he knows that one of the neighbors is an anti hunter and would not let him recover a deer if it expired on their land. Is it ethical to hunt this three acres knowing that there's a neighbor that would not let him recover it or cross if that deer ran that direction after shooting it? Man, I, I personally wouldn't hunt it because of that. That's just bad juju, but I I suppose it could probably be set up in a way where you were as far away from that property as possible and if you were really, really careful about the shot selection, you could probably be okay. But that's a that's a rough one. I think I think at the very least, I'd be looking for a plan B. Yeah. There. Yeah, that's a doozy. I I, I think it would depend, like you said, on some of the specifics. Like if it's a long, narrow property, and the neighboring property only borders on one side of the narrow part of the rectangle, that kind of thing, and you're hunting. 300 yards the other direction with good spots all around you than maybe. But if it's just a tiny little three acre quarter and you can't get away from that neighbor, 
I just, there's nothing worse than having that situation where you shoot a deer that you know it's going to die and then you have it go over there and you can't do anything about it. I, 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 I've always been terrified of that. I've never had it happen, but I've always, you know, worried what if I shoot one and it goes to a neighbor and they don't give me that permission. Um, so I've always tried to avoid any kind of uncertainty like that by either talking to the neighbors ahead of time, if you can, or just steering clear of edges, you know, to avoid that possibility as much as possible. Um, this is one I would, like you said, I would, I would much rather pursue a plan B if you can, than be in a tough situation. But I know people do it, especially people that hunt like in urban areas. Um, that's, that's a reality of some situations. Yeah. I mean, you'd really, you know, it's so situational, like you said, how far away can you get? And I mean, that would be, that would be the kind of situation where I'd be looking for like a perfect 15 yard broadside where I thought I wasn't going to hit the offside shoulder or anything like that and get the, get the best least panicky reaction out of the deer as possible. You know I mean? It, you just, you see little differences if you slip it right through the ribs on both sides and they don't really know what's going on. A lot of times they don't, they don't go very far, but if you catch that offside shoulder and they panic, I mean, it's, it's really granular stuff there, but there's, there's a lot of responsibility with a setup like that. It's just, it's, that's a tough one. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I, I, I just go back to, I think if I were, I, I would waffle on this myself and I'd be like, well, this or well, that maybe, maybe. But I think the thing that would tip me over the edge would be examine the best case scenario and examine the worst case scenario. And so the best case scenario is I kill a deer and I bring it home and I've got a great meal. Um, but I could also maybe get that same best case scenario if I went and hunted a piece of public land or, or whatever. But the worst case scenario is, is so worst case is so horrible in yeah. my, in my view. I just, I don't, I couldn't stomach that. Um, so I would probably, probably avoid it. Yeah. That, that would be, I think it would be a very hard situation to enjoy to yeah. hunt that. Yeah. All right. Moving on. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of sick, sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at urgentcarekit.com slash eater and use promo code MEATEATER. That's promo code MEATEATER at urgentcarekit.com slash eater. Hey, everybody knows Weber Grills. I've been using Weber Grills my whole life, and check it out. They got a pellet grill, the Weber Searwood Pellet Grill. Now, with a pellet grill, you can smoke, roast, and sear what I like to do, 
on the same grill. You can go from low and slow, okay, on smoke boost mode, which gives you great smoke at 180 degrees, or crank this thing all the way to a heat sear at 600 degrees. It's got a full great sear zone, so you can put more food on the flame. This this, this is my way of bull saying. If I was going to cook roast one way, that's how I like to do it, sear roast. Utilize the smoke boost setting to intensify that smoky flavor. Direct flame cooking creates searing, crisping, and browning. Food's going to look as good as it tastes. This grill gets hot in 15 minutes. Cleanup is easy. Cook confidently with intuitive digital controls at the grill and enjoy the sleek, easy-to-use surface. You can also add a heavy-duty rotisserie or rust-resistant griddle insert to up your game. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood pellet grill. Brian asks, how do you plan for wind when a stand is in an area where deer can come from any direction? Just play the odds, buddy. I mean, it, that's a what he's talking about there is so common in in so many different situations that you just have to go where where are they most likely to come from and and how does that work for me? And it's this is the kind of thing I I learned. You know, I grew up hunting the the bluffs in southeastern Minnesota where you had a lot of ridges and you know you could play the wind pretty well. And when I relocated to where I live now it was a lot flatter and there was just that situation where the travel wasn't really dictated by terrain as much. And I just learned to live with it and go, okay, well, they, they, they don't seem to come from this direction as much. So when the wind's going that way, that's my best option, but it's just, uh, it's, it, it's tough because you will probably screw up. I mean, you're going to, you're going to blow some deer out, but what are you going to do? I mean, at the same time, you're really lucky to be in a place where the deer can come from any direction and you've got a chance to hunt, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You you always have to give something up. Like every time I go set, I always know like you got to give something. There's always, no matter what, you're always going to be giving something. So you need to make that judgment call and, you know, look at the probabilities of each and, and something that can sometimes be helpful, um, is, Rather than just saying, well, I think it's most likely they'll come from this direction and least likely there, but then you're sitting there thinking and spitballing, like, where is the safe spot? Where's the danger spot? If you were to look at the, if you were to stand in a tree and then look at the compass directions, north, south, east, west, and if you're sitting there trying to think this all through, assign an actual probability, like a number to each side to just kind of help you think stuff through and, 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 this is just like some little trick I read about that helps people with some decision making, not, not, not hunting, but can be applied to hunting is when you apply a number to your different options, it just makes it easier for you to make decisions. So if you say, okay, well, I think that there's a 50% chance that that's the spot a buck could come from. I think that this direction it's, yeah, it's like a 10% place. And this one over here is probably more like a, then you got to think about for a second about this. I'll think about this. Well, given I know that, and that's maybe like a 25% chance there. And then this other spot, hundred percent. I know there's going to be deer. There's always deer that come from that way. And just forcing yourself to think through each direction and give it a number, that little exercise can help. So that's something to think about as you're trying to make decisions around your trees. Um, just a little mind exercise with that. Um, I, I will say one other thing, which is that sometimes that's just a spot you can't hunt. 
sometimes or sometimes or some parts of the year, um, you just might need to say, okay, you know what? If there's a tree like that, even if it seems to be in an awesome place, if I know I'm going to get winded and there's going to be a doe blowing here, that's going to ruin the whole hunt. Um, you know, let's say it's like October 14th or something like that, or October 1st, and you know that you're basing the whole success of your hunt is going to be based on whether or not that buck will get up and walk past you heading to the food source. But if there's so many does in the area, and if you know that there's no way to get away with out a doe blowing, and you also know that if a doe blows, that big buck just is not going to come through in daylight because he's 200 yards away, and he's if he hears a doe blowing, he's just not going to come through. Well, then that's just not the spot to get it done. And you either need to find some other spot where you can have a little more in your favor, or maybe you just have to wait and yep. wait till it's it's a different type of behavior that you're operating on. Um, so so sometimes those are tough decisions you got to make. Like there's some spots that I hunt where I would love to get in and hunt tree like there's a tree i know that that if there's a good buck in this general area he's going to pass by that tree more than almost any other tree i can think of like i've just seen if there's a big buck in here they always come through this little area but it's right in the middle of everything and if you were to go in there there's going to be deer winning you all the time and so i've i like this year i had one opportunity i decided that one day i was going to try to hunt that spot and i waited until all the conditions would be as best as i thought they could possibly be and I thought it was worth it, like swinging for the fences that one time, and and I did it, and and that buck did come through, but before shooting light. Um, if I were to go in there and hunt that tree over and over again, because um, it's the best tree, it would not be the best tree for long. So you got to know when to when to go for it, and you got to know when it's it's not worth the risk, even though it might be a dynamite spot. It's only a dynamite spot if you can get away with it. Yeah, well, and I I would add to that too is. You know, if you, if you go in and you know, you're giving up something, like you said, pay attention to what happens and, and how could you tweak it a little bit? Like I, I had an experience earlier this year in Minnesota where I had, I had hung a stand over this pond and it was pretty good, but there were a lot of winds I couldn't, I couldn't hunt it on. And I ended up building a little natural ground blind, probably about 50 yards away that opened up everything for me. And it wasn't nearly as, I couldn't see hardly anything it wasn't nearly as comfortable but that spot became so much more huntable by me just going well I, I can't hunt it the way I really want to like I wanted to sit there in that tree and see them coming and have that nice shot angle and everything but it was just a, a matter of a little tweak and kind of going okay well I I got to take a step back and and figure out if I can make this work another way and it it worked really well and so sometimes you have that option too where you want to force something because it's how you want to hunt or where you want to hunt, but there might be a little tweak somewhere, some little concession you can make that opens up more possibilities. That's a very good point. Hard to do. Hard to sometimes avoid the temptation. I, I certainly have found myself there. Big time. All right. TJ says, uh, quote, you often give hypothetical scenarios in your podcast to the people you interview. So here's one for you. I'm going to be deployed for the entirety of deer season next year. So if you couldn't hunt next deer season and you didn't have access to a bow for practice, what would you do during that time period to still make yourself a better hunter for the season after? Ooh. Yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. Uh, you know, I would say consuming content is the obvious one. 
you know, there's still, there's still ways to learn vicariously through other people. But I think, I think this is, and I don't know what, what this guy has access to as far as, uh, just daily life routine type of stuff. But I think that, I think that becoming a better whitetail hunter is just about embracing the challenge. And, and that's just all of life, right? Like learning how to play guitar has nothing to do with learning how to kill six and a half year old bucks. But at the same time, giving yourself that motivation and going, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to tackle this challenge because I can't do this other challenge. I think that lifts you up. And so this is maybe like a weird woo woo answer to this, but anything you can do that just keeps challenging yourself and giving you these little wins through, through the struggle is huge. And that's just so, so inherent to whitetail hunting, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So what are you suggesting though? Are you suggesting finding some other way he can push himself while he's out there or that inherently what he's doing is going to be something that he's going to grow as a person, which will then lead to better deer hunting? All of the above. I mean, I don't, I don't know if the dude can bring a guitar over there and keep him in the, keep it in the barracks, or if it's just a matter of just reading as much as possible or, you know, staying super physically fit, you know, I, I don't know. There, there's not enough details there. It's, uh, you know, it, it it's, it's kind of all up to his situation, what he's, what he's going to have available to him, but anything like that that you can do to just keep the mind going beyond the daily job of what he's going to do, which is super important is just, just to keep it going in the right direction and keep, keep the mindset up of learning and challenges and, and moving toward, you know, new accomplishments. Yeah. Yeah. And I like that. I, uh, I think that's a great idea. I would, my other two ideas would be what you first mentioned, which is cons- learn as much as you possibly can. You know, I, I had a situation like this about a little over a decade ago when I took a new job where I had to live in California during hunting season. So I couldn't hunt and I was just like working all day on the regular day job. And then I came home and I didn't socialize. I didn't go out and do stuff with people. I didn't do anything except for work on wired to hunt and like study every single piece of whitetail hunting content I could in the world. I mean, I, I read and watched and just like went in crazy overdrive learning mode. Um, and, and I do think it helped me a lot. Um, I would say the thing that I wish I would have done then and what I would suggest to TJ is take your e-scouting to like level 2000. Um, so that's one thing that you can very tangibly set yourself up for the next deer season by, you know, either studying the property that you have permission on or find, find 50 dynamite public land hunting spots. If you've got time to do it, go and look at every dream state you've ever considered hunting or whatever the state is that you live in and find every little nook and cranny. It looks like there might be some potential and then zero in on not just like, okay, this looks like a good parcel. This is a good parcel. But go and handpick like six spots that look really good on the map for you to go scout when you get back home and find another piece of property and pick the best six spots there or whatever you can muster up as far as time. I mean, if you can't be in the tree, you might as well be picking trees to hunt next year and picking spots to to scout next year and, and know them like the back of your hand. So when you get out there, you know, okay, this is where that saddle is going to be. I really want to check that out. Here's where that Creek crossing is, or at least what I think is a Creek crossing. Let's go and double check it. Let's see if there's big tracks. Let's see if there's rubs down here in this bottom and, and have that stuff lined up. So when you get back home, you can, you've got a, a list of all the places you want to check out. 
and you're not wasting time on just randomly exploring things, you're scouting with a purpose. Or if you're arriving to hunt, you're starting that hunt with a really, really solid game plan. Um, I think that's one super tangible thing that could help anyone. Oh man, I agree. I think that's a great point is, and, and it's fun. I mean, you learn what the, you know, the most successful deer hunters out there learn to love e-scouting. And yeah, it's not, it's not a total replacement for the real thing. You know I mean? He's going to be missing out on some stuff, but it's a, it's at least in the neighborhood and it's, you know, it's fun to plan hunts. It's fun to find those spots and, and, and put in that work when you can't be out there. So that, that's a great point. Yeah. Um, here's a couple quick, just equipment questions that we can knock out real fast. Someone asked about phone adapters for spotting scopes. Um, Tony, do you use anything like that? I use the phone scope, uh, lollipop adapter, which is a universal adapter. So you can fit it to any size phone and put that against your spotting scope and then, uh, you know, film through it or view through it. And for like long distance scouting with a scope, you know, whether that be early season from a bluff, you know, like we do sometimes on those September hunts or even in the Midwest, I've got some hilltops I can sit on and see down into fields. And that helped me scout a lot. Um, it's so much easier and more comfortable to view through a phone than with your face right up to the little spotting scope eyepiece. Um, so I highly recommend it. Uh, for anyone who does that kind of thing. So I use the phone scope lollipop. What about you, Tony? Yeah, I, I second that as well. And it, you know, one, one super good benefit of that too, is if you take little kids out scouting, it's so much easier for them. Yeah. You know, you, you, you can make it so much more fun and it's so much simpler to get them to see what you're looking at and you're, you're dialed into it's a, and it, yeah, it just, it makes the whole experience better for yeah. sure. Highly recommend it. Definitely. All right. Lane asks about, uh, a place that you and I got to know well, Tony, a question about the wall tent we are using on the back 40. Um, so there are a lot of questions about what that tent was. So it's a tent from a company called Montana canvas. And the model was, uh, the spike tent was what that was. Um, any thoughts on the tent, Tony, any review? Um, after we, after we got out of our own way and actually figured out how to put it up, it was pretty sweet. Yes. <laughs> when, we, when we were first looking at the pile of, of poles and, and canvas, we were like, uh, this thing sucks. And then we figured it out and we realized the problem was our, on our end. And it was, it was a pretty solid tent, man. Yeah, it, it, it did pretty darn well. And, and after you left, we had a mega storm come through with 45 to 65 mile an hour winds. And after we, leading up to that, we tightened everything down. We added the rain fly and after those updates, it, it handled everything it, mother nature threw at it. So, uh, it did darn well. Yeah. That's, that's a, uh, really understated, important thing about tent camping for, you know, for anything. But if you, if you head out on a whitetail trip, a good tent, a really good tent is such an asset and it's often overlooked by people who, you know, don't, don't see that storm coming or don't think it's going to be that big of a deal or don't understand what it's like to not be able to stand up when you wake up in the morning. Like uh, having a good tent is, is huge. Yeah. Big time. Uh, here's a question from another guy named Mark and, um, it's a scent control question. Uh, he says, curious, do you still use Ozonics on every hunt? I do, but I can't really tell how effective it is once you get to 50 plus yards downwind. I'm sure it helps, but I can see deer getting my scent sometimes, even with the Ozonics on, fresh showered, in scent lock clothes. 
uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so my quick take on this is that, yes, I do still use Nozonix, and I do think it helps sometimes. I don't think it's sure thing 100%. I don't think that anything I do from a scent control perspective is, is going to get me through all time. Um, if I can get away with a deer not winding me two times out of every 10 encounters, I look at that as a win because 10 out of 10 is worse than 8 out of 10. Um, and I do think that if I do more things right than wrong when it comes to scent control, it could help me a little bit. And if I do, if I get a 1% improvement because I'm using clean clothes and I get a 1% improvement on my odds because I kept my clothes outside, and if I get a 1% chance improvement because I ran my Ozonics machine, that adds up to, you know, 3% or 5%, or if I do 10 things right, 10, whatever it is. My point being is that every little bit can help you. And my perspective has always been that there's so many things that are outside of your control when you're deer hunting, especially for a mature buck, that if there's something I can do that I can have some control over, I'm going to do my best to, to do that. So I'm fortunate I, can, I was able to get those Onyx, and I know some people can't afford that, and so it's a luxury. It's a luxury that I do think helps me sometimes. Um, but I don't ever depend on it. I'm always going to play the win first and foremost. I'm always going to do all those other things right that I can. That's, there's no guarantees. But, but sometimes I do think it helps, and um, for that reason I use one. Tony, thoughts? Uh, I'm in the same boat. I, I, I got a, you know, when Ozonix originally came out, I thought no way. And so I started, uh, messing around on some public land here in the twin cities and realizing like, I, I think this has given me an advantage I didn't see coming. And so I started messing around with bird dogs cause I, I, I play a lot in that space and it was the best way for me to beat a bird dog's nose. And it really got me curious. And now, you know, after, uh, you know, however many years we've been using them, I really find that the the biggest benefit to me when I'm I'm using a Ozonics machine is when there's that kind of light and variable five to seven mile per hour wind. You know, if it's if it's twenty miles an hour and it's blowing pretty consistently, I can play that really well. But there's a lot of times you get out there where everything settles down in the evening and that wind's kind of coming and going and it's not that big of a deal for a deer that's 150 yards away but when they get close to bow range you're, you're in trouble and that's that's where i felt like i get a real tangible benefit from an ozonics unit yeah yeah it's uh it's 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 one more tool you can have in your toolbox if 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 you're fortunate to have something like that uh you know use it but you certainly don't need to. I don't think anyone listening needs to think that, oh, I'm not going to be able to kill a deer because I can't get one of these little thingamabobbers to put up in a tree. You can certainly do it plenty of other ways. Um, but it's helpful too. Yep. Um, how about this one? A little bit of general question, but it might give us some interesting ways to go. Eric asks if we have any late season archery tips. Um, the one thing I would jump on here, it's very simple. Uh, not revolutionary at all, but practicing still in the late season, I think is the biggest thing for me. I know in past some years, I did not do a good job of that. I was great about my practice in the spring and summer and into the fall and into October. But as soon as it gets really cold and it's not pleasant to be outside or it's dark out in the evening when you get home from work um, and it's not convenient to do it, it's really easy to fall off on that archery practice. And I can tell you, at least from personal experience, that if I'm not shooting my bow often, my form 
and my accuracy drops off pretty quick too. Like I need to keep going. I need to keep my body like tuned in to be on my game. Um, so I'm, I'm constantly trying to do a better job of staying up on that. And the best way I've found to do that is to make it easy, like have it routine and make it easy. So if that means, you know, keeping a target out in a specific spot and keeping your bow hanging up near your back door. So that when you walk out to go to the mudroom, you see your bow hanging up there and they go, oh, yep, I got to get my shots in. And then you step outside and you shoot it right out your back door. If, if there's some way you can make it less inconvenient at this time of year, that might help. Um, I would just say, keep the reps coming, do it as much as you can with clothing. That's similar to what you're going to be wearing out there in the field too, because it is different when you've got big puffy layers on versus a t-shirt in the summer. Yeah, I, I would totally agree with that. And I, I think, you know, most people aren't going to shoot as much in December as they did in August. I mean, that's just a given, but the peace of mind that comes from, you know, one three shot round before you go out and sit for yeah. the evening, knowing nothing changed, you know, knowing your bow is still dialed in and you, you get a little confidence boost. It's, it's a big deal. You see, you can see what you're capable of. You're not sitting there going, geez, I haven't drawn this thing back in a month and a half. I hope I didn't bump it around or have something change, but it is, you know, you, you gotta, you gotta make a little bit of an effort to do that, but it's a big deal. And it's also, you know, when you, when you consider, if you haven't drawn that bow in a month or six weeks or whatever, you know, can you draw it really smoothly back to your face, nice and slow? And, or do you have to sky it a little bit and yeah. <laughs> throw, throw some weight into it? You know, if it, if it's not, if that's not an issue, then it's not an issue. But if you're, if you're pulling some weight that's at your upper end and you're, you're out of practice for a few weeks or more, you might have to do more movement when you draw than you want to. And that might cost you a deer. Yeah. And that brings up another good point, which is sometimes when you're really cold or you've been sitting out for a long period of time, it can make it harder to make those movements again too. So what I'll do oftentimes, almost all the time, whenever I get up into a tree all season long, but especially important at this time of year is practice drawing back in the tree at different angles. Um, so this is like a simple little exercise I try to go through every time I get set up in a new tree. I will try to visualize each different place I think a shot might happen and then draw back and kind of play through that scenario so that I'm making sure like, okay, can my elbow extend all the way back without hitting something behind me? Will my arrow clear some branches in front of me? Uh, if I turn this way, can I do that without my foot slipping off the platform? Different stuff like that. And, and if you do that, it prepares you for the shot, but then it also prepares your muscles just to be, you know, going through that motion and do that, you know, do it in a way that's not going to happen when there's deer around you. But if you sit for three hours and it's cold and you've been just frozen to the bone and you've been, maybe it's a morning hunt and it's 9am and you're going to stick it out for another 45 minutes or something. Um, but you're frozen. Like that's a good time to draw that bow back again, make sure you can do it so that when that deer does show up half an hour later, you don't get in that situation. Like you just described Tony, where you start to draw back and like, I can't get it back. I can't get a pull up, up high or do something crazy or get stuck. Like, how many people have you heard about who have talked about some cold day on stand and they haven't moved for five hours or three hours and then a deer shows up and they can't get their bow back that in August it was a piece of cake and right now they're struggling. You, yep. you don't want that moment. No, and you don't want any surprises when you draw, like you said. So if you visualize where they're going to come in, where your shots are going to be and you know you can draw, 
your elbow is not going to hit anything behind you or you're not going to run out of real estate or the extra seven layers of clothes you have on aren't going to interfere. That's all stuff you want to know before, before, you know, that deer walks into 20 yards. Cause if you, if you have anything come into the equation like that, even if you do get drawn, it's all of a sudden taking away your attention a little bit and adding another element that makes it harder to do your job. And you really want to keep it as simple as possible. So I don't, I don't like any surprises when I draw my bow. I want, I want everything to go exactly as I expect it to. Yeah, definitely. Uh, question here from Colin. Colin mentions that during the late season time, all you hear from people is focus on food, focus on food, focus on food. Uh, but this year, where he's at, it's been unseasonably mild. Temperatures in the 30s or 40s. There's no snow. And his assumption is that deer aren't feeling as much pressure to put the feed bag on. Um, he says, I've noticed that deer in my area are still very nocturnal despite the waning moon and decrease in gun pressure. So where should bow hunters focus at this time of year when the weather doesn't necessitate the urgency to feed? In the cover, man. I mean, there's those deer are still going to browse their way through. They're still going to go bed somewhere thick. They're, they're still going to give you an option. And, you know, what, what he mentions with the, the nocturnal aspect, I mean, that's, that's just one of the most common things to deal with right now. I mean, especially if you're, if you're going to be a food hunter this time of year, I mean, you look at it, you got like nine hours of daylight and the rest is dark. It's, it's easier for them to be nocturnal now than any time of year. And then you think about all the pressure that pushed them there. And so it's, it's really a matter of getting in where they're going to move in daylight. And it, that kind of goes back to what we talked about at the beginning of this is get into the cover and figure it out. Cause there's, there's options there beyond just an, on a, on a field edge for a lot of people. Yeah. And I think it's, it's, it's tricky when you have to go and try to find that kind of thing. And I, I would give one other idea to think about, which is you, you can sometimes the, that cold weather and the great food source can act as a crutch a little bit, or, or it's that thing that will get the deer moving when otherwise they might not. But you can also sometimes find places where the deer are going to move regardless, which, which you alluded to. One of those could be like that good cover. Um, the other scenario that you might be able to seek out and find is, is like the sanctuary. And sometimes a sanctuary could be the best cover, but it also might be something different. It might be a neighboring property where no one's allowed to hunt. And if that's something you can find or a little city park where no one's allowed to hunt or something, those are the types of places where late season bucks will flock to after all that pressure. And if they find that little safe pocket, they might be much more comfortable moving in daylight once they find that safe area. So you might be able to find some non-nocturnal movement, or you might be able to find that one buck that's still moving around. If you can find where these little sanctuary spots are, um, you know, that, that, 10 degree day with a foot of fresh snow is the type of thing that might pull a buck out of somewhere where he has been pressured and get him on his feet. But when you don't have that, you got to find the spots where they already are. And, um, it's probably one of those two things we just discussed. Yeah. I, I think that, uh, it's really easy to assume there's a big time nocturnal thing going on, but also if you're, it, it's entirely dependent on where you're sitting and what you're watching. Or if, you know, if you're running trail cameras this time of year, you could very easily buy into that, but it, it might not be the case. You know, I, I think that nice weather this time of year is actually more fun to hunt. And I, I find myself sitting longer and I see deer doing things that I wouldn't expect them to do. 
and it's almost all movement in the cover, but I don't see even, even really heavily pressured deer. I see them get up and move around. And sometimes you see like a nine thirty little, little kind of blitz of activity where they, they must get up and go browse around in the cover. And there, there's a lot going on out there that you, you really don't know about till you go spend a lot of time in the woods. Yeah. Yeah. That's the truth. Now here's a flip side, Tony. If you've got the time left in the season and you haven't been able to find a buck yet and you're sitting here thinking to yourself, okay, I know where this good cover is and I know there could be, you know, some activity going on in there, but at the same time, the weather's lousy. The deer aren't moving a lot. They're in that cover right now and I could push in there, but that's an aggressive move and maybe there's you know, maybe there is a mature buck there, but if I push in there the wrong way, you know, I might really booger stuff up. Um, would you recommend waiting for some period of time if there is good weather coming? Let's say you've got two weekends or you've got three days of vacation. Would you burn it right away or would you look at the 15-day forecast and then it does look like we're finally going to get it. It's the last two days of the season, but we're going to get it. Would you still do what you just alluded to or would you save your time and wait till you do have those ideal conditions? This time of year, I would, I would check that forecast out just, just because you're probably really only working against the deer here. You're not probably considering a ton of extra hunting pressure. And so you're, you're just playing the game against the deer. And if, if your situation has some food and you know, it's 40 degrees for the next five days, but it's going to drop down to 10 on the sixth day that, you know, they, then you can make that move. Then you can play that, you know, cause you're not worried about other people going in and probably messing around with them. You know, if you're, if you're hunting public land and you think a bunch of squirrel hunters are going to go in there or something, it might be a different scenario. But if you, if you have the option to wait and, and play the conditions and you don't think people are going to screw that up, then yeah, that's, that's definitely the route I'd go. Yeah. Yeah, uh, agreed. If you've got the flexibility, it certainly helps. It cer- the weather definitely can help a lot this time of year. If you can get on your side, it's it's not something uh, to take for granted. Um, okay, we have to wrap it up here, but a couple quick ones. Um, let's see, maybe one last quick one here. Here's something that maybe would be interesting. Um, Nate asks, I've been saving a spot all year that has a wind turbine on it, a new wind turbine, and I've been waiting for them to get the equipment out of there. Do you think that that will disturb the deer too much having this new construction and equipment there? Um, Or should I have just been getting after it regardless? Um, He says that he hasn't even gone out there to put up cameras, so he doesn't know what's going on, but he's been just kind of waiting for the disturbance to be gone. So I guess the, it, to generalize the question, would like a construction project of sorts, like a wind turbine or like someone building a house or someone putting up some kind of pipeline through a property, will that mess up the deer movement or not? Uh, you know, I, again, it's a little bit situational, but my gut says no. I mean, I, I've just spent a lot of time hunting around wind turbines and and construction here in the cities and it's, it really doesn't factor in. I, I don't think a whole lot, you know I mean? If it was right next to the only bedding cover or something, sure. There's, you know, there's a chance it could really screw you up, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't be super conservative in that situation. I think that those deer are going to look at that just like they'd look at farming activity and, and probably not see it as much of a threat and 
I'd, I'd get after them. Yeah. Yeah. I think deer pretty quickly determine, you know, what's normal in a given situation, what's not. And, you know, that first day when the construction began, the first couple of days, they're like, whoa, this is not normal and I'm not into it. And they're going to steer clear of it. But after it's been there for a month um, or whatever, however long time it's been, they're going to eventually realize, okay, in this zone, there's this kind of stuff going on and they're going to have to learn how to live around it. And they'll start moving again and they'll start, there'll be some kind of safety zone where they feel comfortable. But as soon as people go beyond where they usually are, then they'll become uncomfortable again. So I think that, I think there probably is, you know, as you alluded to, Tony, there's going to be a certain, a certain degree of normalcy that, that, that starts again and that you can just start taking advantage of. And you actually might be able to use it to your advantage because all of a sudden, like they're okay with a certain amount of human scent blowing in there. And they're okay with a certain amount of ruckus going on because it's there every day and they've got to continue on with their lives. So they might not travel right into that bedding area like they always used to because it's too close to something, but figure out how they adjusted and then adapt to that. Um, I think, you know, you know, all of a sudden now you might have a great place for your wind to blow into, or you might have a really good access route now that you didn't have beforehand. Um, so, so just try to figure out how they adapt and then, and then roll with that would be my suggestion. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I think the only way to find out is to hunt them and yeah. see. Exactly. Okay, Tony, let's do one last question here from Dominic. And this is one um, that's more just for me, but you can weigh in with any thoughts given your experience. Um, Dominic asked, when is the back 40 being given away? And how are you going to deal with the emotions of losing a piece of land like that that you put so much work into? So I'll answer the the second part first, um, which is, is it is bittersweet in that definitely put a ton of work into it over the last two years and have seen it change and kind of begin to show so much potential. So part of me is like, man, I would just absolutely love to see what this place is going to be like in five years or 10 years. And so many of the things we made or the changes we made are just, just scratching the surface. Like I just barely got to get our fingers into it before, you know, uh, and really with just that little bit of work, not a little, it was a lot of work, but with a short amount of time, um, we've seen like really exciting first initial results. Um, so part of me would love to have another 10 years and be able to keep grinding on it and, and see what it could really become. But another part of me is excited to, you know, kind of let my baby go out into the world and spread her wings. And, um, and, and mostly that excited because I know it's going to spread its wings in a really cool way because we are giving the property away at the end of this year. And we just recently announced how we're doing that. Um, I don't know if I told you about this, Tony, or not. Um, but what we decided, we always said from the beginning, we're going to give it away. Um, we you know, hadn't shared specifically how we were going to give it away. But we knew like we're not going to hold on to this thing and have this be the mediator private hunting mecca. Um, we're going to you know, buy this place, learn about it, share the experience, improve it, and then pass it on to someone or something. And what we decided to do was we wanted this to continue to be a, uh, a place and a resource for other people to learn about hunting and learn about wildlife and, you know, learn about the natural world. And we've been able to use it for that the last couple of years by building content around it and by taking out all sorts of guest hunters and bringing new hunters out there and giving them those experiences. And we want that to keep happening. So we have decided to donate, to give away 
the back 40 to the National Deer Association. So this is the organization that used to be known as the Quality Deer Management Association. It's now the National Deer Association. Um, they're the guys that came out with the Field to Fork program, one of the best programs out there for recruiting new hunters and bringing them through a mentorship program. Um, I got to be a mentor and be a part of that last year and see what they're doing. It's, it's really good stuff. They've got a really strong system in place for teaching folks how to be new hunters and pair them with mentors and give them the support they need. And so we're giving them the back 40 so that they have a place to run those programs. So they have a really high quality place to bring new people out, to show them what's going on in a piece of land like this, to take them out hunting and they can see a bunch of deer and get a chance at a first deer and learn how to gut a deer and learn how to butcher a deer and all that stuff. Um, talking to some other people I know, like Dan Jajo, who was the new hunter we brought out this year, and he's been hunting public land and he's had a hell of a time seeing any deer at all. As a new hunter, that can be a really tough thing. And so he saw like one doe the entire season this year. And then he came out and was hunting the back 40. And, you know, the first day he said, yeah, I saw more deer in the last couple hours than I saw all season leading up to this. And he was so excited about that. Um, you know, having a place like that to give, to be to kind of fast track some of those experiences is, is a pretty neat thing. And so that's what we want to happen on the back 40. And that's what we're going to do. We're, we're passing it on to them and uh, we're going to continue to, to, keep tabs on it and help out with some things out there. I'm excited about some other things we'll be announcing uh, later this year, early next. Um, but we are going to continue sharing some of the stories from the back 40 and, uh, and helping it along over the future years. But uh, that's what's happening. And you can learn more about that on the meat Eater website where we describe in, in some more detail what we're doing with the back 40. And the last episode of the back 40 series just dropped this past weekend as well. So you can you can learn some there as well. Um, that's the plan, Tony. What do you think about that? I love it, man. I think it's I think it's awesome, and I think that I think that they don't understand how delicious those deer are that they're getting there. So that's even an <laughs> added bonus too. That's a good point. Yeah, you and I can both attest to that. It's high quality venison. It's great. Uh, no, I think it's I think it's an awesome awesome thing you guys are doing. Well, uh, it's, it's been a lot of fun and I'm glad that you could, uh, be out there to, to both enjoy it and to really help us set the foundation with a lot of those, those tree stands and box blinds we put up, Tony are, are going to help a lot of new hunters of the coming years. So kudos to you, man. Thanks again for your help. Well, no problem, buddy. It was a blast. All right. Well, uh, any final thoughts before we wrap this one up? Just, uh, just get out there and enjoy it. It's going to end soon and we're going to have to wait a long time. And so... Just if you if you have the chance to hunt now, even if you think it's not going to be very good, it's still it's still worth it to get out there. That's uh, very true. Highly recommend it. And I always I love those last few hunts when, especially the last night, that last hour. Yep. You know, if it if it's not action packed, I'll I'm actually okay with that because I like to just sit and really just soak in everything around me and take in every every squirrel chirping on a branch next to me or every, every animal that does pass by or looking at the moon rising or the sun setting, or I don't know, I just take in all those little things and just try to savor it. Just try to just soak every little last bit in. And then, then also reflect on the season, um, that led up to that. It's just, uh, those last hunts are something to just enjoy for what they are. So, uh, so do that, do that. And, uh, until next time, thank you for tuning in. Thanks for being here and stay wired to hunt. 
I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. 